Throughout this episode, you'll hear occasional dynamically placed advertisements as well as host-read ads by me promoting the work of my sponsors, similar to what you'd experience when you're binging your favorite YouTube content. If you find the ads disruptive, consider joining my community on Patreon. Premium submarines receive full-length ad-free episodes, hundreds of hours of bonus content, and the ability to connect and chat with other listeners. To learn more, visit patreon.com slash backfromtheborderline. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hi, Molly. This is Priyasha. I'm from Dubai, and I recently started listening to your podcast. Um, I discovered the podcast... Uh, when I was struggling with a uh, sense of self, I recently got diagnosed with BPD a couple of months ago. And one of the few things that I uh, learned was that, you know, you need to work on your sense of self and your self-esteem and all of that. And I tried everything possible to kind of build my self-esteem. And it felt like no matter what I did, I would just fail. And I started to question if it's something just wrong with me. Maybe I'm not doing something right but then I searched for a podcast on Spotify that could help me with this. And lo and behold, I came across your episode on the no self. It just brought me to tears. Like it was the first time that I kind of saw a different perspective. And I was just like, I do occasionally meditate, like I do occasionally meditate and stuff, but just I, it never occurred to me that I could look at it from that perspective, you know, my BPD from that perspective. And it, I just, you know, with these days with meditation, I have that intention of like tapping into the no self and all of that. And it's just been helping on my day to day. And honestly, I wouldn't have been able to get here if I hadn't listened to the podcast and if it hadn't been for you. So thank you so much for what you do. Thank you, Priyasha, for that lovely voicemail. Welcome to new listeners, to returning listeners. Welcome back. To back from the borderline and I don't want to talk to your personality I want to talk to your soul the idea of alchemy is to reduce something with fire 
burning it down so that something new can rise from the ashes. You can do this with your personality too. You can perform emotional alchemy. You've always had the power, you just didn't know that. And now you do. More than 50% of us will be diagnosed with a mental illness at some point in our lifetime. Many of my listeners identify with various psychiatric labels like BPD, bipolar, CPTSD, autism, ADHD, depression, anxiety, the list goes on. The medical model of mental illness tries to convince us that the root of our suffering as humans is due to chemical imbalances in our broken brains, and that the best we can hope for is to numb or suppress the symptoms of these disorders and dysfunctions into remission. The definition of savior is one that saves from danger or destruction. What if we viewed our symptoms as saviors? Through this new lens, we can begin to see painful mental health symptoms as natural responses that we can learn to become fully conscious of, integrate, and slowly change. On this podcast, you will learn to view your symptoms as saviors, as alerts from your body, mind, and spirit that want to let you know when you're out of alignment with the deepest yearnings of your soul. From chaos comes clarity. Through working and integrating the concepts we'll explore together on the podcast, you will emerge transformed, standing in the ashes of the person you used to be. I really love that Priyasha spoke about my episode all about how our obsessive pursuit of a sense of self can actually, for some of us, contribute to further suffering. And I created an episode all about this concept in Buddhism called anatta. And for long-term listeners of the podcast, you know that I'm a lifetime seeker. I really love educating myself and researching different helpful concepts from various spiritual and religious traditions. And I'm a big believer in taking what resonates and leave the rest. And anatta is one concept that was incredibly helpful for me because I drove myself a little bit crazy trying to figure out what my sense of self was. The healing of the self or the psychological health of the self has been an intensely studied issue in the traditions of both Buddhism and psychology and psychoanalysis. And when we're talking about psychoanalysis, imagine Sigmund Freud, you know, the psychoanalytic couch. How do you feel about that, right? That's the vibe. And it's easy to suppose that the understanding of self in Buddhism cannot coexist with the understanding of self in psychoanalysis because in mainstream Western psychoanalytic thought and, you know, all of our self-help, you can hear it even with Priyasha, right? Who's in Dubai. She's being told by the people she's seeing to, you know, explore her sense of self. And for so many of us, this can be a really fruitless exercise. And it's also very confusing. What are you supposed to do with that? In Buddhism, in the Buddhist tradition, the self is actually mainly regarded as an illusion and something that needs to be 
deconstructed and not identified with. Whereas in psychoanalysis or mainstream psychology, the idea is that the self should be reconstructed for mental health through constant analysis. Something that's helped me when it comes to studying a Buddhist perspective, I don't consider myself to be Buddhist, I'm just a lover of reading and investigating all things spiritual. From a Buddhist perspective, the idea of individual self is an illusion. It's not possible to separate self from its surroundings. And the Buddha in the Lankavatra Sutra states, quote, Things are not what they seem. Deeds exist, but no doer can be found. Zen Buddhism actually shows that there is no antithesis of self and no self. So it's a little bit paradoxical, right? Because according to Buddhism, the true nature of self, like discovering the true nature of who we are, according to Buddhist philosophy, is only something we can achieve when we inquire and doubt and actually negate the self. Devotees of Zen Buddhism actually doubt and deconstruct the certainty of anything that exists until they arrive at this doubtless and paradoxical place where there is neither self nor no self. A prominent Buddhist writer once wrote, quote, the problem of the self evaporates into sheer abstraction when pursued analytically, leaving nothing behind. It's because of this inquiring mind that the earlier Zen devotees became dissatisfied with all the intellectual explanations of things, and they finally came to master and knew what they wanted. Now, even though Buddhist devotees continuously inquire into and doubt the existence of the individual self, which is this concept of anatta that I explored in that episode, they don't deny the existence of the I or me, right? The I or me or the you, right? This I is the thing that inquires and actually doubts our sense of self. This sense of the I is in Priyasha. The I in Priyasha is the version of herself that said, I need to find a sense of self because this is what they told me I needed to do for my BPD recovery, right? So Buddhists don't deny that there is a self, right? That, that I is a thing. But it is for this reason that the Buddha actually introduces what he called the middle way, which if you're familiar with BPD recovery, if you identify with what is now known as borderline personality disorder, right? The creator of dialectical behavior therapy, Marsha Linehan, was actually a Zen master. She was very familiar with Buddhist philosophy and all of these concepts, and a lot of it made its way into dialectical behavior therapy. The DBT skill, or the idea of wise mind from DBT, has a lot of roots in Buddhist thinking. So Buddha introduces the middle way, which to me sounds a lot like wise mind, right? So according to Buddhist thought, the middle way is neither a self nor a no self. And in the same Lankavatra Sutra, it is written, quote, the ultimate truth transcends the antithesis of self and not self. One great insight 
Buddhism teaches is the middle way, the middle path. And the focus of the middle path is neither self nor no self, but more of a meta self who is an inquiring spirit. In Buddhist meditation, any attempt to shape individual identity as self, Buddhists believe that is what creates suffering. And the formation of a cohesive self, or a sense of self as we call it, Buddhists do not believe that this solves the problem or reduces suffering. Rather, the attempt of the formation of the self is actually what creates our suffering. And according to Buddhism, they believe this is an illusion. And one psychoanalyst named Jack Engler, who he himself practices and studies Vipassana meditation, writes, In meditation, the striving for sense gratification and for selfhood, which has been the basis of mental life up to and including the stages of identity and object constancy, are seen as the next potential point of arrest and source of suffering. Mark Epstein also wrote, Buddhist meditation tends to intensify certain ego functions so that the sense of self is at once magnified and deconstructed. So for a Buddhist to meditatively explore the human being's innermost desire for self-certainty and identity is the most important way to overcome human suffering. This exploration and meditation leads to the experience of emptiness that serves to destroy idea of a persisting individual nature. So I want to unpack that briefly. I think it's really important and there's so much for us here. I remember being so confused when I first sat down to meditate and I got the Calm app. I even got Sam Harris's meditation app, Waking Up, which is really, really good, by the way. I highly recommend it over Headspace. I'm not sponsored by it. It's just a really well-made app. But regardless, when we sit down to meditate, it can be really frustrating because we aren't well-versed in some of these really important philosophical and theoretical concepts behind the idea of meditation that we need in order to be able to gain benefit from it. Just sitting down to meditate can be really, really frustrating, especially when you struggle with emotion dysregulation because you can be like, I'm not doing this right, or I don't know what's supposed to be happening, that kind of thing. That's how I felt when I first started meditating. But the idea of meditation is to focus on your breath and watch your thoughts. And the idea is, is if you do this for long enough, and consistently enough, and you build this up, right? It's a habit. It's like a muscle you need to strengthen. Five minutes can be almost torturous when you first start meditating. And I know people who can meditate for up to like an hour and a half at a time very easily, but it's taken them like 10 to 15 years to be even able to get to that point. But the idea behind meditation, what's supposed to be quote unquote happening is that the longer you sit with your monkey mind, as Buddhism refers to it, you start to really see how illusory the self is, right? You see how quickly thoughts pop up and they go. Pains in your body pop up and then they go away again. And you see how transitory everything is. And if you really start thinking about it, you really start going, what is me and what's not me? 
And this is what they're talking about here when we explore this concept of no self, is that in Buddhism, this really important work that we do is to sit with ourselves in silence long enough to see that this sense of self that we're trying to create is nothing more than a bunch of masks and that the real truth of who we are is just pure beingness, emptiness, pure awareness. The Buddhist philosophy has a really beautiful relationship with the idea of emptiness. And long-term listeners of the podcast know that we jokingly refer to what is a very common mental health system of just chronic feelings of emptiness. That feeling where you just feel like you are a black hole devoid of anything and it's a really horrible feeling. Chronic feelings of emptiness is a serious mental health symptom that many of us suffer with. And the reason why I love Buddhist philosophy is because Buddhist philosophy talks a lot about the concept of emptiness. And it is through exploring the way that they view it, we can maybe take this inherent suffering of emptiness that we feel and flip it around and find the beauty in emptiness. So when a meditating person experiences emptiness during meditation, that person realizes that everything is relational. Emptiness in Buddhism isn't merely a feeling of being emptied, but the sense that the meditator experiences as they devolve into this innermost layer of being. It's like a beautiful, comforting emptiness. A Zen Buddhist scholar, K.G. Nishitani, writes that the emptiness of sunyata is not an emptiness represented as something outside of being and other than being. It's not simply an empty nothing, right? Which that's the same kind of emptiness that scared me as a child, like the sense of foreverness, even just like deep bodies of water or outer space really freaked me out because emptiness scared me. But in Buddhism, they talk about this absolute emptiness, emptied of even these representations of emptiness. And it's for that reason, it's at the bottom one with being, even as being is one with emptiness. And the Buddhist concept of emptiness is called sunyata. And it's not a negative concept that denies the world. Rather, it's the absolute emptiness as the essence of every being. This feeling of emptiness shatters the self-centeredness of the person that's meditating. And then finally, the meditator realizes every being and thing is relational because every being and thing is originated from that same absolute emptiness. A famous Buddhist writer wrote, if things have no intrinsic or absolute reality, then everything must be relational. If people realize that everything is relational, they begin to have compassion to each other. Emptiness is like a web or a matrix that makes one thing dependent on another. And the root word of the Buddhist word for emptiness, sunyata, has the meaning of womb, like a mother's womb. Every being in the world is created from the womb of emptiness. And likewise, emptiness or sunyata can be interpreted as neither a mere nothingness nor a void, but the source of true creation. In the Buddhist meditative practice of vipassana meditation, the most important element is that meditators be aware only of the present. You hear that all the time, focus on the present moment. 
And in Vipassana meditation, the idea is that you are only aware of any kind of thinking, emotion, sound, or movement from the present moment without any response to them. So in other words, as a meditator, you non-judgmentally observe what you're feeling and experiencing in your mind, although you might suffer severe discomfort or inner conflict about it. You just have to let it be and be in the present moment. The idea is that you are aware of those feelings without resistance or defensiveness. The Buddha asserted that mindfulness awareness without judgment, attachment, or aversion to what's happening in the present moment is the most important factor in diminishing these unwholesome states of mind and creating wholesome states of mind. Meditating people, it's not like they don't have inner conflicts. They do. But they're experiencing those conflicts without any attachments, defensiveness, or aversion to them. They're letting them wash over them. They're watching them go by like waves in the ocean. And this is the aspect of meditation that's incredibly different from that of Sigmund Freud's psychoanalytic thought, which in psychoanalysis, the idea is to expel or remove these inner conflicts. Whereas if you are pursuing more of a Vipassana meditative practice and trying to explore your emotion dysregulation issues through Buddhist philosophy, the idea is not to expel or get rid of these unpleasant feelings, states of mind, etc. It is to detach from them, disidentify from them, let them wash over you and know that they are not exactly you. You are not them, right? You are not identified with those things. And I've found this incredibly helpful in my own journey. The Buddhist doctrine of non-attachment makes the non-judgmental way of meditative practice possible. So during this practice, as a meditator, you are trying to overcome any attachment to things, people, places, because the idea is, in Buddhist thought, that attachment creates judgmental reactions to things and to others. I know that's been true in my own life. It's really tempting to interpret non-attachment in Buddhism as an escape from the world. And people have definitely misunderstood this concept and do participate in what is called like spiritual bypassing, right? But the Buddhist theory, the true Buddhist theory of non-attachment indicates that human beings should be liberated from attachments that prevent them from seeing the reality of the world. I want to say that again because it's really important. The Buddhist theory of non-attachment indicates that human beings should be liberated from attachments that prevent them from seeing the reality of the world. I don't know about you, but much of my own suffering in my life has come from my distorted view of my current reality, my victim complex, my true belief inherently that bad things were going to happen to me, that I didn't deserve love, that other people hated me and didn't want to be around me. I'd created so many really harmful and toxic stories in my mind. And 
the discovery of Buddhist philosophy amongst other different types of spiritual practices have really helped me clear these distorted cobwebs from the lens of how I view the world and has really helped me find a better sense of peace and balance within myself. When human beings have an attachment to something or someone, we objectify that something or someone. We do this so that we can be unconscious of the dynamic nature of that person or thing that's constantly changing and moving. Human beings are able to see and accept things or people as they are without judgment and distorting reality only after we overcome attachments to those things or people. I've talked about the issue of control. I think if we're really honest with ourselves, we really do see the people, places, and things in our life as something that needs to serve us, that we can extract from, that we believe that they need to maybe even stay the same. We reject change. But in reality, everything is always cyclical, always changing. And these Buddhist concepts of non-attachment help us detach And it's not unhealthy detachment. It is an allowance of letting the people and ourselves and our life change and transform and loving them for who they are right then and there in front of us and not painting or projecting versions of them that we want them to be so that they can suit our childlike needs. This is growing up. What Buddhist non-attachment is really about is detachment from thingness and objectifying people and things in our lives. To genuinely love someone else is to have the emotional, mental, and spiritual maturity to perceive that person in front of you clearly as they are in that moment. I hope that was helpful for you. This is a concept that's really meaningful to me because I think we can get so caught up in this search for self or a sense of self because the lack of a solid or stable sense of self is listed as a symptom in various different disorder and dysfunction labels. And I think it's great to have a certain amount of a sense of self, but you may have a better idea of the true reality of self, of oneness, of beingness, of allowingness, of non-attachment, if you explore this idea through various different philosophies and ideologies like that of Buddhism or other maybe mystical traditions. And I share these things with you because they've helped me. But I want to reiterate again that everyone's different and different things will work for different people. And I've received so many voicemails from my listeners, including this one that you heard from Priyasha that shared how beneficial these concepts have been for them in their own recovery. So it's my hope that it will help you too. All right, so let's hear from another listener named Allison who has a question regarding dealing with friends pulling away. Hey Molly, my name is Allison. I'm 26 and I'm calling from Brooklyn, New York. Um, First off, I want to say thank you for creating this podcast. It has been detrimental in my recovery, just having that feeling of not being alone and having others that can relate and have similar experiences. 
being able to talk through that. And my question is really centered around that of blame or shame place on you. Um, specifically, I've had my sister and one of my um, friends kind of bring it to my attention that I was selfish in a lot of ways and that I didn't acknowledge the pain or anxiety or trauma that I have brought on them and like the side effects that my two suicide attempts have brought on them along with just the past year and a half of roller coaster of emotions that I've had. Um, so obviously in the moment I believe that like it's hard for me to have been able to acknowledge how they were feeling during it um, just because I was having a tough time knowing mine. So I'm just curious how to deal with this. One of my friends just pulled away and haven't talked to her in five months because she feels I wasn't there for her um, in terms of being able to acknowledge her feelings um, during all of this. So just curious how to deal with these types of things. And yeah. Well, first, I just want to say thank you for calling in, Allison. And also, I'm really glad that you're still here with us. I know how real and heavy and difficult it can be to deal with chronic suicidal ideation. I went through it myself. I'm still of the belief that many of us have this, well, we all have a death urge. It's just part of being human being. And there's that French concept called le pelle du vide, and it's called like the call of the void. Is a very real reason why people, when they kind of like are driving across a bridge, you're like, what if I just drove off the bridge? Or what if I just did this, right? It's a human thing. And so I think that one of the most helpful things people that actually just fucking understood how this feels did for me when I was going through that is saying like, it's actually normal what you're feeling. You're not crazy. And I think a lot of people are scared to validate the suicidal feelings because they think that by validating it, it's telling someone to go and actually do it, but it's not. Part of the hardest part, in my opinion, of feeling suicidal is feeling like there's something wrong with you for feeling that way and that you're all alone in those feelings. So if you are feeling like that right now, I just want to tell you that you're not alone and that there's much to be found in some of the things that I opened up the podcast with, with developing the ability to kind of watch these feelings and urges rise and fall within you and recognize how cyclical some of this stuff is within us. I've talked about this before, but we are living in a spiritually starved society. Many of us are raised in dysfunctional environments that are devoid of spiritual nourishment. And I don't mean religion, but these environments that we're raised in and the systems that we are raised in cultivate unhappiness, emptiness, and disease. Disease, right? There's a reason why the word disease split those two things up. We are dis-ease. In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com and get up to 15% off your first purchase as a member with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for up to 15% off your first purchase as a member.
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And this leads to mental, nervous system, and physical disorders, which is why we live in such a sick and empty society today. And this leads to many of us wanting to die, especially in adolescence and early adulthood, But what we don't know in these stages of our lives is that the death that we are longing for is metaphorical and spiritual, not literal. The problem is that no one has explained this to most of us. So this death urge remains and this deep depression, this dark night of the soul, as many mystics referred to it as, is what it feels like when our spirit is telling us that it's time for our childhood mentality to die so that we can become adults, that it's time for spiritual death and rebirth, right? For initiation, integration, it's time to clean up, grow up, and awaken to higher truths. But mainstream mental health doesn't address this death urge, but instead pathologizes it and asks us to suppress it. But this doesn't mean that it goes away. It might become less noticeable, but it will continue to simmer under the surface until properly addressed, and it will continue to knock at our door until we answer. The problem with the disorder model in the medical model of mental health is that it places the cause of this disorder or dysfunction and all these symptoms, it places the cause within you, the individual, when in fact emotion dysregulation difficulties that many people identify with, especially those who identify with traits and symptoms of what we refer to as BPD. These symptoms more often arise out of dysfunctional family and intimate systems, like our families growing up, marriages, partnerships, and then work environments. And when you visit your average traditional modern psychiatrist in Western society, They're unlikely to tell you that your suffering or symptoms that you're experiencing are a collective or systemic problem. They're going to tell you it's a personal problem. Why? Because they're not trained to look at the collective or spiritual ecology in general. They're not at all trained to examine how we relate to one another as a collective whole. So I wanted to start off responding to Allison with your voicemail there by sharing that. And it's incredibly helpful and has been helpful for me to explore my suicidal thoughts through this lens. And my research into all of this has been really illuminating for me. And so I share this with you and any other listeners who might be struggling in hopes that it might help you as well. Now, let's talk about the second part of your question you know, your friends and your sister and the people around you telling you how they've been impacted by your behaviors, by maybe the potential of losing you throughout your suicide attempts. And the experience of these people in your life is very real. And just as you would want to be validated, I'm sure that you want to validate them too. 
but I had a very close friend of mine who, by the way, she just got her doctorate in um, psychology. She's going to be a practicing therapist. I'm really proud of her. But about six years ago, she cut me off and she had to tell me in no uncertain terms that essentially my friendship just wasn't beneficial for her. She felt like it was draining on her. I'm going to have her on the podcast actually in the next few months. And I'm sure we can talk a little bit about that. She was going through a lot in her own life. She lost a family member to suicide and I was going through the worst part of my life. I was just going through a divorce after my marriage in London dissolved. And I was really just trauma dumping on everyone in my life. I was a hot mess. I don't think I was being very empathetic to other people. And I give myself grace looking back because I was completely unconscious of what I was doing. But, and I was, I demonized and split on her so bad when she cut me off. And I was so mad at her. And it's only now that I can take a step back and understand the decision that she needed to make. And it was for herself. She had to prioritize herself. She had to set boundaries down with me. And so what happened after my anger dissipated, I was flooded with shame and guilt. And then I would repress those feelings and go back to anger again. And I didn't want to look at my own behavior I think sometimes when we struggle with emotion dysregulation, we can kind of be like the person in the pool that's drowning. And they always say when you're training to be a lifeguard that you would have to be really careful about just jumping in and saving a drowning person because sometimes the drowning person is panicking so much that they can take you down with them. And even on an airplane, right, they say that you need to put your own oxygen mask on before helping other people that need help. And these two concepts are things that I've reflected on quite a bit as I have moved forward in my own recovery process. And as I become more and more stable and grounded in my own mental space and feeling better, I'm definitely not perfect, but I've identified people that I've had in my life who were taking kind of the role that I think I was playing in my relationship with my friend And it was very much like feeling like I was friends with a couple of emotional vampires. And no one wants to believe that they're an emotional vampire. I sure as hell didn't want to believe that, but I definitely was one. And I think that it's helpful to realize the changing nature of who we are. We can feel like we are an emotional vampire at one stage in our life, but that doesn't mean that's who you are forever. And so it's really helpful to just become conscious of and aware of these kinds of behaviors that we're perpetuating and the fact that it might be the reason why people think that they need to pull away from us in order to protect themselves and kind of have a bit of an understanding towards that. I thought it might be helpful. I found this article on Thought Catalog and I'll link it in the show notes. It's called Emotional Vampires and How They Drain Empaths and Highly Sensitive People. And I think it's helpful, as I said, to listen to and explore these types of articles and not split on it, right? Or think like, I'm an emotional vampire and that's who I am forever. Or this other person, I'm hearing this and now I think this person in my life is an emotional vampire. So that means they're bad. They're a narcissist and cut them off. 
that's not what we do here on this podcast. This is not a podcast where we armchair diagnose people. On this podcast, I actually don't even really buy into psychiatric disorder labels. I think they are harmful. I think that they pathologize the human experience. And I also think it's kind of hypocritical because when I was super deep into kind of the BPD community, lots of people who identify with BPD want all of the understanding and grace in the world and they don't want to be stigmatized. But in the very same breath on a ton of BPD subreddits, you'd see people with BPD saying, I have a narcissistic mother and she's a horrible person and she's basically the devil incarnate. And I'm going, it just goes to show how we've really slipped into such childish and immature ways of viewing things. We've lost our ability to think critically and it's so selfish. It's so selfish to identify with one psychiatric label that's often stigmatized and expect love and grace and understanding and to be seen as an individual who is capable of growth and change, but then to group all other people, i.e. narcissists into one category and say, yeah, but not these people. It's just silly when you really start thinking about it. So when we're reading this article, you know, we can all be emotional vampires in certain stages of our life. And we have the ability to grow and change out of that, become aware of what we're doing. And so this is all for the purpose of awareness. This is not to label, shame, or stigmatize. So as I mentioned before, the article is called Seven Ways Emotional Vampires Drain Empaths and Highly Sensitive People. Emotional vampire is a colloquial term for toxic people who drain us of our energy and leave us feeling emotionally exhausted. They have a parasitic quality in that they provoke emotional reactions in others and feed off of their emotions as well as resources. Empaths and highly sensitive people tend to be targeted by emotional vampires due to the strength of their emotions and vibrant energy. Now, I'm going to provide some reflections because I think there's a lot to be taken from this article, but I also think that it's fun to unpack some of the dumb shit too. Because these types of articles, they have a way of painting people as if they're like evil little manipulative. So like imagining this emotional vampire rubbing their fingers together and saying, mm, I can't wait to just feed off of all of these emotions and just fuck up everybody's life. Nobody thinks that. And the interesting part is, is that most of the people who I know who have slipped into kind of emotional vampirism are also empathetic and highly sensitive, myself being one of these people. So it's just funny because sometimes these articles are written in a way where it's like, oh no, poor us highly sensitive empaths getting targeted by these evil emotional vampires. When in reality, a lot of trauma is kind of enacted when highly sensitive people are interacting with each other. And it's just like all of our traumas are bumping up against one another. And that's the complex, messy reality. But it's just so much easier when we are emotionally immature to just say, these people, emotional vampires, bad. Me, highly sensitive empath, good, right? It's not that simple. So the article continues to say, we've all heard the term emotional vampire, but what does it really mean? I consider emotional vampire to be a colloquial term for toxic people who deprive us of our energy, our sense of emotional safety, and our ability to engage in self-care. Being around an emotional vampire can cause us to feel depressed, anxious, frightened, and confused and in pain. It can affect our productivity, our ability to focus, and our overall mental, physical, and emotional well-being. 
The term is commonly used to describe narcissists and sociopaths who psychologically bleed us dry. It can also be applied to garden variety, toxic people who are self-centered and self-absorbed. Whatever the point at the spectrum of the emotional vampire falls on, he or she can take a toll on your mental health. Again, me popping in here to share some thoughts. Well, yes, all of us have the capacity to display these toxic behaviors of emotional vampirism and our reactions and words and behaviors absolutely can negatively impact the people around us. But I also think that many people choose to just label the people around them as narcissists or sociopaths when in reality it's just a complete inability of a highly sensitive person to set any kind of boundaries and so when you just refuse to set any kind of boundaries with someone who might have trauma in their past and have attachment issues and struggle with emotion dysregulation and you let things slide you don't know what's okay and what's not okay and you haven't set firm boundaries It's no surprise when people walk over your non-existent boundaries. And I think people who are relating to and friends with and in family systems with people who end up getting slapped with a diagnosis like BPD or who end up in inpatient psychiatric units after suicide attempts, you'll see that the families and friends and people around them go on these tangents of Googling and finding stuff about BPD, narcissism, and emotional vampirism, and they can get themselves all worked up, and they can split black. I, I like so ironically, they're splitting and labeling this person as a toxic emotional vampire. It's their fault that my life is shit now. Now I need to cut them off, and that will fix things. When ironically, sure, the person who ended up in the psych ward or identifies with BPD might be struggling and might have said some things and done some things that contributed to the relationship breaking down. It's in these moments when people have very black and white thinking about the person with BPD or the suicidal person that they don't look at all at their own behaviors and how they have zero boundaries and they aren't going to reflect and say, what kind of people do I want in my life? What will I, will I accept and won't I accept in my relationships? And so the thing is they may cut that friend or person out of their life and without any kind of boundaries, they're just going to attract another emotionally draining person into their life and the cycles will continue to perpetuate. And I think that's something we don't talk about enough. I'm not even going to read through this article because essentially it's just, I don't think it's very helpful. I think these types of articles just contribute to making people feel like they're justified and cutting people off and not working on a relationship or even setting boundaries or having mature conversations. And I don't think it's helpful. But one thing that I think is helpful for someone like Allison, who's struggling with wondering why people are pulling away from her and maybe being called selfish and told that, you know, she's not acknowledging the pain and trauma that her behavior and suicide attempts have contributed to their lives. That's all well and good. But I also think that it's just important to read into things like emotional vampirism because I had to take a look at myself and say, am I the energy drain? Am I the person that people don't want to jump in the pool and save because they're scared that I'm going to take them down with me? And 
the thing that I realized about myself is that I was the kind of person who really wanted validation and advice and help from outside of myself. And I was drawing so much from the people around me that they didn't have anything left to give. And then I even felt guilty about it. And so there was no more reciprocity left in my relationships. I was take, 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 taking, and the people were give, 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 giving. And some of the people that I find most frustrating to interact with in my life now, whether that be family members or other people that I have to interact with, is when I feel like there isn't reciprocity, where I'm constantly being asked for advice or help, or they're only texting me if they need something. And then when I need to vent or I need to, you know, need something from them, it's like they're MIA or I don't even really feel like they'd be the person I would reach out to because I don't consider them to be, you know, emotionally stable enough or okay in their own selves that I can even feel okay going to them for something. And I recognized in the beginning of my recovery journey, I just thought, oh man, I don't want that reality for myself. I want to have a reality where my relationships are reciprocal, where I can show up for my friends. And of course, when I need them and I'm in a mid of a downtime, I try to have better boundaries. So for example, how I used to approach friends is like accosting them with text on text on text on text, calling them and expecting them to show up for me right away. Where now I might send a text and say, Hey, I'm going through a little bit of a downtime. Do you have time later this week to hop on a phone call and chat? Or do you want to grab coffee or something like that? And Share and give them the opportunity and let them know that you're needing that support. And that way they feel like they have a choice where they can say, Hey, you know, actually I'm not available to talk tonight, but maybe we can talk later this week. Right. Instead of feeling like you're just dumping on them. I'm not sure if you are familiar with the concept of trauma dumping because there's difference between venting, which everybody needs to vent, but there's a huge difference between venting and trauma dumping. So when you're venting, You're sharing your frustrations with someone you trust to reduce your stress. So with venting, you're intentional about what you want to share and you're aware that you're venting. So you might say something to your friend like, hey, can I just vent to you about something for five minutes? I actually don't need advice. I don't expect you to do anything. I just need someone to hold that space for me, right? With trauma dumping, you're going to be oversharing difficult or intimate personal information without the person's consent or during inappropriate times. And with trauma dumping, you don't consider how your words might impact the listener. You're not considerate of what the listener might be going through in their own personal experience, and you're not open to advice or solutions. And people who trauma dump tend to have intense feelings, express emotion excessively and share indiscriminately. So this way of relating to people can be counterproductive and destructive to our relationships. And when we trauma dump instead of vent, it makes for an awkward interaction sometimes. And this is what can cause people to limit their interactions with you because the listeners can feel anxious or stressed. They might be going through their own stuff. It might be triggering them. And when we overshare in this way, it might be creating an environment where the other person who's listening to us, 
they're not able to interject, offer solutions, or even share their own troubles. So in some cases, people perceive trauma dumping as manipulative. They might see it as a way to gain sympathy or avoid critique. And I'm not saying that's how it is or how it always is, but it can have that appearance. And I think for those of us who struggle with emotion dysregulation, it's important that we are conscious of that. Because when I was number one gold medal trauma dumper (laughs) to all my friends, I was not conscious of any of this stuff. So how can we tell if we're trauma dumping? The idea that you want to hold is to always be considering the effect of your, your communication. Think about how other people might receive the information you're sharing and recognize the potential impact of what you're sharing. This can help determine if it's the right setting or the right relationship or if you're an appropriate place in the relationship for that level of personal detail. So it can be helpful to pay attention to a couple of things. One, why are you sharing what you're sharing? Do you want advice? Do you want to just vent with someone not telling you what to do? Do you want sympathy? Do you want to feel heard or held? Right? What do you want? What's the underlying need when it comes to why you're sharing what you're sharing? It's really helpful to reflect on that before dumping on the other person. And also pay attention to whether you're giving the other person a chance to reciprocate, ask questions, or provide feedback. So I highly recommend that if you resonate with what I've shared here and you maybe are going through something similar as Allison, you're experiencing friends pull away and distance themselves from you, maybe don't research into emotional vampirism, but realize and recognize that people might be Googling shit and coming across articles like that and labeling you an emotional vampire. And the helpful thing to research is something like trauma dumping. If you resonate with this, really focus on researching trauma dumping and oversharing and start journaling into some of the root causes of why you feel like you might be doing this. Maybe start being a little more conscious with your communication. Ask a friend, hey, do you mind if I vent to you for five minutes? I actually don't need advice. Or, hey, I'm really going through something that I need your advice on and I'm having a bit of a dark time. When works good for you for a phone call, right? Give people that are in your life the ability to consent and give them the ability to be reciprocal with you, give and take, ask what's going on in their life maybe after you're done talking about your thing. Because for me, what I recognize, one of the best things that's helped me get out of dark places myself is being there for other people and listening to other people and providing a safe space for people I love and for people like you listener here on the podcast. So as I mentioned before, I hope these reflections were helpful and don't shame yourself. If you feel like you are struggling with emotional vampire vibes, know that you just like everyone else is capable of growth and change. And that if you have people pulling away, sometimes relationships can be mended and sometimes they can't but it doesn't mean you're a bad person. It just means that maybe you have lessons to learn and reflections to have and learn how to be 
better about venting instead of trauma dumping and learning and leaning into becoming more conscious of the reasons why you might overshare about these things. Let's take our next listener voicemail, which is from Gia. Hi, my name is Gia. I'm from Philly and love your podcast. I'm recently a premium submarine and I'm very much enjoying it. Um, My question for you is how do you forgive the people in your life that may have contributed to why you suffer so much with BPD traits? Because I very much am in the mindset of, you know, they were doing their best. Um, They suffered. And generational trauma, like knowing all of those things and being very far in my recovery, um, yet I still can't help but have this deep-seated resentment. And being around them just causes me such discomfort, even though I forgive them. Like, I just, I don't know how to get past it. I really just want to be able to see, you know, my caregiver and, you know, not have this underlying, like, boiling rage towards them. Ah, Gia. I relate to this one big time, too. You know, forgiveness is a bitch. I'll say that. I spent a long time in anger, bitterness, and resentment. And I intellectually, I understood the importance of forgiveness and finding that. But it just felt like my body didn't want to. I wanted to forgive. All right, everyone, that is the end of the public free version of the podcast for today. My premium submarines unlock access to full episodes of Back from the Borderline, as well as 110 plus hours of bonus content. So if you'd like to hear my response to Gia, where I dive into the concept of magical thinking, forgiveness, and going back to the empty well when it comes to forgiving our caregivers, and how we can balance the idea of acceptance and forgiveness when we are in recovery, as well as my answer to another listener voicemail from Faye, who feels like she is developing crushes on all of her new friends while she is in a committed relationship. In my response to Faye's voicemail, the topics we explore are the FP or favorite person phenomenon in the BPD recovery community, the danger of objectifying other people and relying on them for emotion regulation, and how to zoom out and be less dependent on the validation of others for our emotional stability. So if you'd like to unlock this full-length episode, 
you can click the link in the episode description and sign up to be a premium submarine. I do this full time. I don't have sponsors or ads on my podcast. So what you're hearing right now is fully supported by listeners like you. This is my full-time job. So not only will you unlock 110 plus hours of bonus content, get access to my monthly Sonar System newsletters, by signing up, you're also supporting an independent content creator and making it possible for me to continue offering you these episodes. So without further ado, what are you waiting for? Go become a premium submarine. I would love it. But if you're not quite ready for that now, you can support the podcast in other ways, like following the podcast on your favorite podcast app. That way you won't miss new episodes every time I drop them every Tuesday. You can also share this episode with someone you care about if you feel like they would like it. And you can also follow me on Instagram at backfromtheborderline.com. We're fostering a really really great community over there. So I'd love to welcome you into the fold. And as usual, I'd like to thank you for spending time with me today. Out of all the content out there, and there's a lot, you chose to listen to me. And that means the world to me. I love you lots. I'll see you right back here next Tuesday. And remember, anyone, even you, can come back from the borderline. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Back from the Borderline. If you'd like to receive my monthly written recovery musings via Substack directly to your inbox, send me a voicemail, join the Patreon community, or check out my Amazon booklist recommendations, visit backfromtheborderline.com and click to access my link tree.